0: The whole book, but there are some things scriptures that are in this chapter that are really important vitally important scriptures and some information that is clarified that that we don't have other places so um, there's a lot there's a lot in here, so let's just dive right into it. Remember where we came from last week in chapter four, Paul was talking about going through tough times here and the kinds of sufferings that we endure here and how important it is to have an eternal perspective and not to get our eyes too focused on the here and now and what we're going through right now, but instead to look for that eternal perspective, look for the heavenly perspective. And so he continues along that vein and talks to them about death and about heaven And he says in verse 1, For we know that if our earthly house, this tent, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So he's calling our bodies just a tent. The idea is this is a temporary dwelling place. And it's wearing out all the time. But he says, keep a perspective on that because God has something better for you, way better in heaven. Now, a lot of times when we think of heaven, we think of, ooh, I wonder what kind of house I will have there. But really, the new body is such that it really makes housing sort of irrelevant the reason why we think in terms of houses is that we need a house to protect us from the elements, we need a house to put our stuff in and lock it up, uh, we need a house so that we can have a place to hang out so we don't have to hang out with other people, and, <laughs> but the, and it's hard to imagine, but it's true that our, our bodies, when we get to heaven, are so rich and full and perfect for us. That where we hang our hat isn't going to matter. That need won't really be there. And so here he talks about um, our bodies as being a tent and the fact that God is going to create a perfect body for us. Now, these bodies do a decent job for a while of depicting who we are. The real you, no one could know it unless your body was able to communicate that somehow. And so sometimes when someone's young and talented, it's, it's incredible what they're able to do with their bodies. But as you get older, they do wear out. And you get to a point where this body just is not doing the job of Communicating the real me because the real me is soul and spirit. It's not just who I am physically. I can lose limbs of my body and I'm still the same person. It just makes it much harder for me to communicate that with someone. But you see, some people who are, you know, have no arms and no legs who are able to really use the little body that they have to communicate in a glorious way. But at our best, it's nothing like the way we will be able to function when we are with Jesus, when we're in heaven. Because it says, uh, John said, Beloved, now are we the sons of God? It hasn't yet appeared, what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we'll see him as he is. And so, All of that frustration that you have sometimes of not seeing God or not hearing from Him, it's a problem with these bodies. In heaven, you'll be able to hear from God perfectly. You'll be able to see Him wonderfully. There's that connection, and not only that, but we will know each other even as we are known. And so that body was something that Paul was really holding out for as his physical body was deteriorating because of all the abuse and everything that he had been through. A big deal to him was, I'm going to get a new body. Now, Jesus was perfect, and yet he has a glorified body himself because he needed to become a man, and so he couldn't take on all of the capacities that were his. According to Philippians 2, he emptied himself. That is, He gave up the independent use of his divine attributes. He didn't come down here and just do whatever he wanted. He limited himself so that he could understand what we understand. Going through everything, being tempted in everything as we are, yet without sin. And yet for him to have his body transformed was a glorious thing. Now, it's interesting we can get little hints about our body in heaven by looking at Jesus's and he was able to move you know great distances apparently without having to walk um Jesus seemed to be able to walk through walls and just show up in the middle of a of a room he ultimately floated up in the sky so perhaps that body could fly as well um we don't know a whole lot about our new bodies. Now when you see Jesus's body described in Revelation chapter 1, it looks like a different body than the one he came back to the disciples in or at least a greatly transformed body. Now having said that, it's important to it's an important doctrinal distinctive that we understand resurrection as being It's the same person come back to life. Um, Therefore, I believe, and, and almost all reputable theologians believe, that it's important to make a distinction that you don't just get rid of one body and take on another body, because that wouldn't really be resurrection. That would be reincarnation. And a lot of times when pastors describe this, they aren't specific enough to make that point clear. But it, it, as he talks about get, losing the old body, it's not about losing the old body completely and just taking on a new one. It's about this transformation that takes place. It's why Jesus' glorified body didn't cause his other body to just be laid there. You know, his His body was missing out of the tomb, and he was transferred, his, his body was, was changed, and that's the word that the scriptures use for it, and that's what'll happen to us too. So it's gonna be the real you, it's gonna be the real me, but there's this glorious transformation that goes on, and probably the things that are the best about you will still be apparent, and the things about you that you've always hated probably won't be there anymore. It's like an incredible eternal makeover. <laughs> and and that's, that's exciting. And so he says, there's a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan. He said, just thinking about it, I go, oh, earnestly desiring To be clothed with our habitation, which is from heaven. If indeed, having been clothed, we shall not be found naked. For we who are in this tent groan, being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now, the idea here is he's saying, Man, we definitely want that new body. The older I get, the better it sounds. And here in this earth, we're groaning, like Paul said over in Romans 8 as well. It's just, it's getting to be a grind. It's getting to be difficult. And he says, man, I am looking forward to that new body. Again, this is one reason why Paul could look at the eternal perspective. He was suffering in his flesh, but he knew ultimately that that suffering was only going to bring him closer to his new body and going to be with the lord and so he said hey i'm i'm looking forward to it the more my body groans the more anxious i am for heaven and for finding out what heaven is going to be like for me the bible doesn't tell us a whole lot about heaven and so we have to kind of guess or speculate or whatever um, about it. Um, probably, if the Bible was more specific, it would, we couldn't fathom it. When Paul was caught up to the third heaven, as we see, as we'll see later in chapter 12, he said, "I just saw things that I can't describe. It's not something that I can really explain to you. But heaven, the one thing we know, like the old song says, heaven is a wonderful place, filled with glory and grace. I'm going to see my Savior's face because heaven is a wonderful place. Paul had that sense. And he says, it's not so that he could be naked or unclothed. Now, what this means is he, he didn't expect to become a disembodied spirit, See, it seems that our soul and spirit need a body in order to reflect the reality of the soul and spirit. And we are not people who look forward to the day when we are just ghosts. Again, if it was ghosts, it was not resurrection. If it's a substitute, it's reincarnation. Resurrection is that that same person comes back to life. And in the case, biblically, their bodies are transformed. And he says, I'm not just looking forward to being unclothed. In other words, I'm not just thinking when I die, I'll become a ghost. Now, there are some people who would teach that when you die, that you'll become like a disembodied spirit. Um they you know that that you'll be waiting and then there's a resurrection in the future because the scripture talks about resurrection in the future and therefore um, you know you're you're going to be kind of stuck in limbo until the time of the resurrection but Paul makes it pretty clear here I think that that's not it i'm not going uh, a spirit needs a body and he has a body for me, and he's going to give it to me. Now, this presents some problems, and there are different views on this because um, the Bible says so little about it. Some people believe that we'll become disembodied spirits, but I think 2 Corinthians 5 here makes that really unlikely. Some people would believe in soul sleep, That when you die, you kind of go to sleep and then you wake up at the resurrection. We're going to see from later in the chapter that's not a real viable Christian option. But what do you do with places that refer to the resurrection as future if you believe that you get your new bodies when you die, as Paul seemed to? Well, there are some people who have um, postulated that there is an intermediate body. Like if I died tonight, I would go to the presence of God and get a temporary body. And later on during the resurrection, I would have a permanent body. The trouble is the Bible doesn't say anything about that, so it's totally speculative, but a lot of good people believe it. It's better than believing that you're a disembodied spirit or that there's soul sleep. But Paul seems here in, to have a grasp on the fact that, no, when I die, I'm getting my new body. God's preparing for it. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you, possibly even talking about his uh, construction of our new bodies, um, that transformation. Now, 1 Thessalonians 4 talks about the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord there, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. So there are people who believe that it's at the rapture that resurrection happens. So what happens before then? Again, some would say a temporary body is the only option. Another possibility, and the way that I tend to lean at this point, is that in 1 Thessalonians 4, all the dead in Christ don't rise at that point. Some of them have risen already, and it's a progressive sort of thing. The concern in 1 Thessalonians 4 was people were afraid that their their friends who died missed out on the rapture, missed out on something. And so I think what Paul is saying there is, hey, look, they'll get there before you. When we pass from time into eternity, weird things happen. As you know, when just from watching Marty McFly. But, you know, you start, it starts messing with your mind after a while because if we really are leaving time and going into eternity, it's possible that we'll all get there at the same time. Um, you can think about that for a while. But notice Paul doesn't say, And the same thing over in Philippians 1 when he talks about, I don't know if I want to live or die. He never says, I don't know if I want to live or die because life hurts. I mean, Paul never had that perspective. Paul said, I don't know if I want to live or die because if I live, I get to minister still to you. And I I love that. But if I die, I'm going to go be with the Lord, and that's even better. So I'm kind of stuck between two alternatives. In other words, he sees the good in either option, and therefore there was that longing for eternity. And it wasn't, boy, I can't wait. You know, I'm so torn because I could go be a disembodied spirit. I'm so torn because I could go to sleep for a couple thousand years. Or, You know, he, he seemed to have a sense of immediacy about the way that he would benefit And how you work all that out from an eternal standpoint, um, I don't think we can be certain. But I do think that this passage is especially important because it's not that we want to be unclothed, but further clothed, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Death will end, life will rule. Now, verse 5, He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who also has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So he says, God's the one who's working all of this out. If you have a problem with it, or you think it's too complicated, or you don't trust him, or you're kind of struggling with, hey, but wait, I don't, I'm not ready to go. I, don't, I can't get a grasp on that kind of eternal perspective. Then he says, well, look, God's the one who's doing this. He's doing it all. And he's the one who has given you his Holy Spirit as a down payment, as an earnest. When when Jesus said, you know, I'm going to leave, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit to live inside you, and it'll be great for you, and then someday I'm going to come back. Everyone who has the Holy Spirit inside of them, which is... Anyone who has given their lives to Jesus Christ has an inner testimony, has, a, has an awareness of the presence of God in their lives. Nothing could imaginary could change our lives the way the Holy Spirit changes our lives. And so Paul says, look, do you have the Holy Spirit inside you? Do you sense God working in your life? Do you sense him convicting you of your sin, do you sense him leading you? Are there those times when you're going through a difficult time and he just gives you that peace? And Are there times when he gives you love for someone that you couldn't ordinarily love on your own? Well, that's the down payment. That's God saying, I'm taking care of you now, and you can believe that I am going to fulfill every promise that I've ever made for you in the future. So, he says, we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. He said, as long as I'm here in this body, I'm absent from the Lord. Now, we're never completely away from God, but he's looking for the fulfillment of that which the Holy Spirit is only a down payment for. And he's saying, I realize the longer I stay here, the longer I have to wait to get to heaven. And so he, and then he goes on to say, for we walk by faith, not by sight. That's such an important verse. I can't even tell you how important that is. Because for all of us, it's so key and central to living the Christian life is deciding that we're going to walk by faith and not by sight. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But walking by faith, well, faith is the way that we get saved, by believing something we can't see. And as we continue to walk with God, it's all about faith. If you you just look at what you can see, if you just look at the circumstances that are around you, Life would be miserable. You'll end up in despair. People who are total realists and only look at what you can see become the most depressed people in the world. That's why the philosophy of existentialism, whereby you only, what exists is only what you see and perceive is also known as a philosophy of despair. I was reading this week um, in uh, Charles Darwin's autobiography, and he talks about, maybe some of you don't know, but Darwin was a Christian up until he was about 40 years old at the time he wrote Origin of the Species. and But he gradually lost his faith over a period of time um, he quit believing in Genesis, and then he started rejecting miracles, thus rejected the gospels, ultimately rejected that Jesus is the Son of God. but he told about he said he 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 never became an atheist; he wasn't that stupid but but he he to, he told about a time when he said, "I was out in the Brazilian rainforest, and the beauty was just." Almost unbearable. It was so wonderful, and I was just so caught up in it and and soaking in every every ounce of that beauty of creation. But he said, "Sadly, now, if I went back there, I wouldn't feel that anymore." He said, "I, I feel like a man who, over time, has become colorblind. I." I used to see the world in color, and other people can tell me how red it is, but all I can see is gray. When he was a younger man, he wrote to encourage someone who had lost their child. And he said, the Bible has so much comfort. It has so much in there that, where God can meet you and help you. But later on in life, after he had rejected the Lord... When his own daughter died, he just said, all I can look to for comfort is at least her life was short. And then he said, and then to another person who had lost a child, he, he told them, you know, the best thing I can offer you is time. Time helps. And it's like, wow, this is a guy who would studied for the ministry. This is a man who actually was a pastor for a while. When you turn your back on everything that you can't see, when you decide to live your life for the visible, and that's it, you end up empty and something dies inside. Real life is walking by faith, not by sight. And we should be reminding ourselves of this often. When you get in a situation that's difficult, and you're out of ideas, and you can't think of a possible way for this to turn around, you have to make a choice. Do I walk by faith, or do I walk by sight? Now, you might go, Dave, that's easy for you to say. You have no idea how much money I owe, and there's no way for me to pay that back. Well, I would say, if you owe somebody a whole lot of money and you can't pay it back, it seems like it's more their problem than yours. (laughs) But you go, I mean, you won already, right? But ultimately, it's that decision on a daily basis. How am I going to live my life? By believing what God says or by just looking what I can figure out? If I do it that way, if I walk by sight, then I'm my own God, basically. I'm, I'm the measure of all things. I'm the ruler of all existence. But Paul said, we walk by faith and not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord what an important verse that is. Because with whatever else we understand about when the resurrection is and how we get our body and what that body's going to be like, and there are certainly passages that are helpful in this respect, notably 1 Corinthians 15. But to me, all I want to know is that when I take my last breath on earth, my next breath is in heaven. I want to be with Jesus. And Paul said... I'm confident of this. Now there are people who so want to hang on to an alternative position that they would interpret all of this and say, oh, it's not talking about dying and going to heaven at all. He's, he's talking about being absent from the body in terms of not being there with the church. Um, but the whole context obviously is eternity it's the future. It's the new body and everything. And so, um, I think this is about as clear as it could be. And you'll find very few people. Um, you'll find very few people disagreeing with this. People who take the Bible seriously. We're confident. Paul said, "To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord." So, those people who we love who have died, we should have great confidence. They're not here. Their body is in the ground. Deteriorating, but they are with the Lord, better off than ever. Now you go, but wait a minute. If for resurrection, if it's really the same body, how how in the world can you put a body together? Like, I mean, I had a heart transplant, so I got some other guy's heart. That means he was buried without a heart. Um, there are people who get. You know, die in a blender, you know, (laughs) in the accident. And how in the world? Well, I'm not sure how God does it, but, you know, we understand, even as much as we understand about genetics, we understand that really from one cell of the body, that's all you'd need if you have the right chemistry, as God does, that you could recreate a person who's exactly like you. Um, And so, he doesn't need all the body parts. He can construct those out of simple stem cells. By ta- And not only that, God wouldn't actually need the cell because DNA is actually just a computer program. It's just coding. It's the order that things are put together. And so if God in his mind, since he invented us, knows our frame, he knows in every way exactly who we are, then he can go to his memory and reconstruct our body perfectly. Now, because of sin and its effect on the human race, um, none of us are perfect genetic uh, specimens probably sin actually damages the DNA of people. and That's why it can be said that in sin my mother conceived me and talks about being born into sin. So it may just be a few tweaks and our body will be what it was always supposed to be. There may be just some kind of genetic weirdness that causes us not to be able to fly, for instance. You go, but wait a minute, our arms aren't long enough. There are all kinds of, of creatures that can fly who aren't supposed to, like bumblebees and, you know, that little fat guy with those little wings and, and uh, hummingbirds, what they can do. They can go 2,000 miles on those little wings. And, you know, so who knows what our capacity is. But when we look at the image of God and we see it in each other, you could almost look and see what is a composite of the greatest qualities of every person who's ever walked the face of the earth. The greatest mind of anyone, the greatest sense of humor, the greatest physical athletic ability, the greatest relational sensitivity, and take all of those things and put them together and you're probably getting close to what it's going to be like to be in heaven with all people like that, no weirdos. Just just people who are finally fixed will experience what it would have been like to be in the Garden of Eden, but even better, because Adam and Eve were innocent, but they had potential for evil. We will be holy and righteous and pure. So, we're going to experience something that's just out of this world, literally. And so Paul just said, I have no problem leaving here. Now, I understand that a lot of people are afraid to die. And there are a lot of people who go, well, you know, I don't want to die till I'm married and have some kids. Or I, I don't want to die because I'm afraid it'll hurt. Or what if it's not like you think it is? It's, you know, the, the two fears that are the greatest in people when you poll them, one is fear of death and the other is fear of public speaking. I don't know about that one, but death, you don't need to be afraid of it. You're going to feel really stupid if when you go, I'm dying, I'm living, and you're going to go, why did I spend so much of my time on the earth worrying about this? A powerful thing happens in your life when you decide that you're confident that you're going to be with the Lord, that you're not worried about death. It has no threat over you. It's not something that you have to worry about. And that sets you free. Not that you're going to go jump in front of a car so that you'll go be with the Lord, but so that you want to make the most of this opportunity because you know that you have all of eternity to just rejoice and to be with each other, to fellowship, to, to worship God, and to do whatever else you've all been meaning to do and you haven't got around to it yet. The reality of resurrection is something that we should carry with us every day. When we feel ourselves getting sick, we should go oh, I hope this is it. And then, you know, go to the doctor just in case God has a little more time for you. But, but there should be that sense of, not this foreboding, like, oh, no, this could kill me. But, yeah, this could kill me. This is awesome. That was the way Paul lived. And because he wasn't afraid of death, he wasn't afraid of anything. Lived his life courageously taking all sorts of chances that people would say, wow, why did you do that? That's dangerous. But Paul had an eternal perspective. And and so he always said, you know what? I can live or die. That's not a big deal to me. When I leave here, I'm going to see Jesus. I'm going to get my new body. It's a great deal. Now, there are some people who because of the pain that they endure here on this earth, they begin to long for heaven, and, and some of them even want to take their own life because they say it's so miserable here that I don't want to go on. And that's really not an eternal perspective because the eternal perspective tells you that eternity starts right now, that right now God is with me that, I, that I, I want to hang on to him. I, I want to do everything that he wants me to do. I want him to be pleased with me. And so really understanding heaven would not cause you to make yourself go there. Although, and this is contrary to what a lot of people teach, I believe that if somebody's a child of God and they're, and they're stupid enough to take their own life, I believe they'll still go to heaven. Um, a lot of ministers will lie to you about that because they're afraid then you're going to go off yourself. Um, I don't care. No, I, I care. <laughs> I care a lot, but I care a lot more about telling you the truth than, than I do about whether you go to be with the Lord. You, I, I would be a little nervous about someone who's thinking like that and wonder, do they really have the Holy Spirit inside of them? So definitely make sure you get saved. Um, before that happens. But I've had dear friends who, who took their own life, and it was Satan had lied to them so much. Uh, I know God understands that. Um, I'm certain of it. There are people who I just, I would give my life for in a second who, who got into so much pain that they took their own life. And I know they're with the Lord. I don't doubt it. I've even said, there are some people that if they're not in heaven, I don't want to be either. Kind of like Paul was always saying, you know, he he wishes he could give up heaven for other people. Well, I know that God loves people even more than that. And as Jesus prayed, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I expect his compassion and his love to kick in there, even when someone does something incredibly selfish Incredibly painful for those they leave behind. It's the cruelest thing you can do, suicide. But God's there. And eternity is there. And you don't need to be in a big hurry to get there. You'll get there right when the time is correct. In the meantime, don't you want to take other people with you? Don't you want to share with people who are here now about that eternal hope? Paul did. Therefore, nine verse nine, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well pleasing to Him. He said, all I want to do is please God. Therefore, on the basis of the fact that He has me covered, on the basis of the fact that He has promised eternity, and He has a perfect body that He's going to make out of my old mortal body. Um, On the basis of that, you know what? All I really care about is pleasing God. And what a great perspective. And how important it is for all of us to learn this a little bit more. Who have you been trying to please? Uh, If you're like most people, you can think of a whole list of people that you're trying to keep happy trying to please yourself, trying to please other people with what they expect of you, trying to please your employer trying to please the church. There's so much that we do that's all geared around pleasing others. And that probably comes from a a good heart. We shouldn't have a desire to displease others. But it's just way simpler than that. Just decide, as long as I live, I want to please God. And then in eternity, I still want to please Him. This is what I do. This is who I am. I am someone who cares about pleasing God. Now, sometimes that'll mean people are displeased with you. Other times it'll mean people are thrilled with you. But you just can't chase your tail on trying to please people. So keep your eyes focused on him, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Just worry about what he thinks. Just worry about what he says. Just worry about how he leads. And if he is pleased with you, you're doing a good job. You're fine. It's just too tiring otherwise. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, this is one of the places, one of the few places, that talks about this particular judgment seat of Christ. Now, does this mean that somehow we are going to have to go pay for our sins, that we are going to have to be judged after we die? Um, Certainly not. When we get to the end of the chapter, we'll see that that's not the case at all. The word here used for judgment seat is the Greek word bima, B-E-M-A, and it was generally more than a place where you would go when you're busted. It was a, an award stand at the Olympics, at the various athletic competitions. They had the award stand where you come up there and, and stand on top if you're the gold medal winner, and everyone would applaud, and you know now we do it with the national anthem and all that kind of stuff. Um, So this is talking about the Bema seat judgment. This is not the great white throne judgment that we learn about in Revelation whereby everyone who's died without Christ will receive judgment. This is the place where believers will come to receive rewards, to get their rewards. And and it, it would seem that God looks at everything that we've done in our life And he just goes, poof, and everything's gone that we did for wrong reasons or motives, all the sins that we committed and things like that. And whatever's left is then held up and and rewards are given for that. The good thing is, I think that even almost everything we do at least has mixed motivation. But God is able to separate the holy and the profane and he's probably going to reward you for some things that you didn't think you'd get a reward for. But we're all going to stand before him and he will reward us for what we did in the flesh. As he says, we all must appear that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. You don't receive anything for what's bad, but the bad will be taken away, and you receive rewards for that which is good. Now, he says, uh, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consciences. Now, if this Bema Seed is only for believers, it is a little, and there are other opinions about that, but it is a little puzzling why he says, we know the terror of the Lord, and that's why we persuade people. But see, there are two sides to judgment, and everyone is going to appear before Christ. Believers who are clothed in the righteousness of Christ will appear before him for the purpose of rewards. But anyone who rejects Jesus Christ, there's another judgment coming the great white throne judgment. And so Paul doesn't say, I'm worried about being at the great white throne judgment. I'm afraid that I'm going to get burned up in the end. But he says, when I'm thinking about the fact that I'm going to get rewarded, I'm going to answer to God, it causes me to be passionate about wanting to persuade others to make that same decision to accept Jesus Christ so that they can be at the award ceremony instead of at the great white throne judgment. The terror of the Lord, you know, you don't need to fear him if he's your God, if Jesus is sticking up for you. But if you don't, you should be afraid, very afraid. And... And the scriptures talk about that over in Hebrews a couple times. It talks about God being a consuming fire. And it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, So yeah, we should take him very seriously and make sure that we're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And he says, we're well known to God. God knows us. And I also trust are well known in your consciences. He said, I... Hope you guys know me well enough to know that this is real to me. This is something I'm not just playing games, I'm not just faking this. I'm not promoting myself. I I really and sincerely believe what I'm what I'm telling you and that's why I'm doing what I do. 4 verse 12, we do not commend ourselves again to you, but give you opportunity to boast on our behalf that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. He said, I I don't really need to defend myself to you, but I know that there's a lot of people there in Corinth who are saying bad things about me, and there are people who just look at appearances and take shots for external things. And he said, I just want you guys to see where my heart is so that you'll be able to have something to combat the lies that, might be going around about me. It doesn't mean necessarily that they would always go and, and um, you know, argue with people to defend Paul, and that's not, not what Paul was looking at. He just wanted them to know in their hearts, remember who Paul is. Remember how he's been with you. Remember the, the consistency of his ministry for so many years. And ultimately, that ought to be enough. I don't, you know. Periodically, somebody will be mad at me about something, and they'll tell as many people in the church as they possibly can to try to turn people against me. And sometimes they're successful at getting people to leave the church. And I generally don't get involved. I generally don't get up and defend myself because I guess I think, when it's all said and done, if you if you know me, you ought to know that there's more to the story. You ought to know that there are certain things that I just wouldn't do just by knowing my character. Now, if you don't, if you're suspicious of me, if you think that uh, I have some kind of a hidden agenda, then you're better off somewhere else anyway. You need to be somewhere where you can trust the leaders. Um, But Paul had that attitude, but he's going, you know, it helps sometimes just to be reassured and so he goes, I'm just telling you my heart because um, I, want you to, I want you to understand this. And then he says, uh, for if we are beside ourselves, that is if I'm way off base, if I'm crazy, it is for God. Or if we are of sound mind, it is for you. He said if if what I'm saying is crazy, then God made me crazy because all I want to do is please Him. and if I end up doing something crazy because I think God wanted me to do it i'll I'll own that, you know at least know that what I'm trying to do is please God. And so if I'm wrong, if I'm off, it happened because I was trying to please God. It's so important that we get to know people's motivation. Because motivation is the first thing that will be criticized, generally. Um, there are pastors who involve themselves in some methods of ministry that I might disagree with. I might think, well, you know, there's a better way to that. Invariably, when those pastors are attacked by others, the first thing that people critics want to say is, I think he's just driven by his ego. I think that he's just all wrapped up in himself or whatever because they know that's the lowest shot you can take. Um, We should be very careful about that because personally I believe that most pastors and not only that, I think most people in this world think they're doing the right thing. It's just we're kind of mixed up sometimes. And, you know, people who are deliberately doing wrong, why? Why would they do that? Maybe they're hurt, maybe they're in rebellion against God, maybe even as they're doing it they know, but for the most part, as Paul's kind of pointing out here, my heart's in the right place, I know that. So if the advice I give you is crazy, it's because I was just trying to tell you what I thought God wanted you to know. That's being transferred through an imperfect clay vessel, and I understand that. But um, if what I say makes sense, it's for your benefit. If what I say doesn't make sense, let God worry about it. Good verse. For the love of Christ compels us. Because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died, and he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. What is it that compels you? What is it that gets you up every morning? What is it that you get excited about? Dodgers? Angels? Been a rough (laughs) postseason. Paul said, there's just one thing that fires me up, and it's driving me, and I can't stop because this is so important to me. It's the love of Christ. And I understand that he wants that love to be communicated to others, and that is driving me, pushing me on, to want to be as faithful in serving him as I possibly can. The love of Christ just pushes me. Because, as he says, here's what, what I'm figuring, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. In other words, if he died for me, then I'm dead. If he died for everyone, then everyone's dead. And so, and as Paul uses this imagery a lot, he's saying, there's a sense in which I'm already resurrected because the old me is dead. That's what baptism symbolizes when you go down into the water, that the old you is being buried. We are buried With Christ in baptism, raised again to newness of life. And so he said, This life isn't mine any longer. I don't own it. It's only something that God has given me by forgiving my sins and giving me a fresh start in life, making me new. And he said, That's why I'm so motivated to represent him well. That's why I care so much every day about opportunities that he gives me to share with others, because I know those people are part of the all that he died for. And in a sense, the message to everyone in this world is, you're dead, but you don't have to stay that way. God can give you life. He can breathe that life into you. Many of us still live like we're dead. Paul didn't. He goes, no, I get the resurrection. I get the fact that I'm plugged in with him in such a way that when he died, I died. When he rose, I rose. And I have a a life that doesn't belong to me anymore now because of it. He died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them, and rose again. therefore, verse 16, from now on we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him thus no longer. He said, so right now, when I look at people, I don't look at their flesh. I don't look at who they are apart from Christ. I, I want to connect on a deeper level. This is a person for whom Jesus died. And then he goes on to say, in this beautiful verse, verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How thankful I am for that truth, for that verse, that whatever keeps haunting me from the past, whatever it is that makes me feel a failure, make me, makes me feel like damaged goods, whatever I do with my old man, he says, old things are passed away. All things have become new. Scriptures tell us that his mercies are new every morning. And so remind yourself that that old you that walks in sin is dead. sometimes acts like it's alive, but it's dead, it's history, it's done. But there's a new person that God has made you, and we are a new creature. We're a new creation. He gives us that fresh start, and that is incredible. That's the, the most awesome gift we could ever have. Old things have passed away. Make sure that they do. Categorize your life. And maybe there are things that are a part of your life now that should have passed away. There are things you should have let go of that you haven't. Ways of living, ways that you made decisions, habits that you made, you know, uh, practices that you observed. You're a new person. You get to reinvent yourself according to God. You know, one of, the, one of the great things when you move, especially if someone, I remember as a kid, you know, if you leave one school and go to another school, you start over. Nobody knows you. And now you can create a whole different persona, character for yourself. Well, that's what God wants to let us do every day. Hey, everything starts over now. You're a new creation. What's old? It's history. Everything is new. And may God help us to walk in that newness of life. Verse 18, Now all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Reconciliation means that there are two things that had been (laughs) completely separated, and now they're being brought back together. And so Jesus Christ reconciled everything, will reconcile the whole world. The way that it has lost its direction through sin, the way that the world is so damaged and defiled, and the way that our lives went so in the wrong direction that we were just far from God, what, what the Lord wanted to do was to reconcile Us. And he talks about reconciling all of creation. He wants to put things right side up again. He wants to do that work of undoing all the damage that we've done and recreating that which ultimately more accurately reflects God's heart. Back when he saw what he made and he said, That's good good. He'd look at it today and not sure he'd say that because he's seen it so much better. For us I look at nature and I go, yeah, that's great. Because I compare it to growing up in Stanton, you know. But <laughs> but for God, he looks at it and goes, i got to fix this. I have to fix those people. They still bear the image of God and I still see good things in people, but There's something that's missing because they can't be connected to me or to each other. And so Paul says, you have the ministry of reconciliation. God wants to reconcile us with him and us with each other so that then we can go and declare that to others. Have you heard the news? What's upside down can be turned right side up. What's damaged can be restored. What's lost can be found. Reconciliation. I wonder how faithfully we carry that message. Sometimes the way that we talk to people, the way that we talk about people, and the way we, our, our whole worldview is almost one of division and argumentation, judgment. But always the good news is you can be reconciled to God. There isn't anything that's happened that has ruined your future. There isn't anything that you've done that robs you of God's best for your life. But to be able to declare to people, and, and part of how this works is because we become reconciled to others. We become reconciled to each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. And then we are willing to join hands with others who don't know him and they see, wow, I can be a part of this fellowship. This is something that you think I'm wanted here? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely you're wanted. And then you can build that bridge and let them know how they can be right with God. But our whole ministry is all about putting things back together that have been separated by sin. And any opportunities that we have to send that message gets at the heart of who we are called to be and what we are called to do. If you have brothers or sisters in Christ that you can't be reconciled with, Oh, I'm mad at them. What hope is there for you to be a minister of reconciliation to others? You can't even do it yourself. Do what you have to do to make things right, and then take that as a stepping stone toward communicating reconciliation. Verse 20, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. That is a passionate description of what sharing Christ is all about. On behalf of Christ, I'm I'm begging you, get to know him. Come to him. Get things right with him. If there's anyone here tonight, and generally on Wednesday nights, we have people who are devoted Christians, but if there's anyone here who has never really made that step and made that decision to give your life to Christ, on Christ's behalf, I'm begging you. Because he's begging you. He's not just like, can you take it or leave it? No, he really loves you. He really wants you to be his child. He really wants to give you a fresh start. He wants to be close to you. He wants you to know that that you're close to him. And... If that's you, make sure you come up afterwards. There'll be some people up here in the front who would love to pray with you and tell you how you can accept Christ. And beyond that, for all the rest of us, when was the last time you begged somebody on behalf of Christ to please give him a chance? When was the last time you did your job as an ambassador for Christ? How far have you been willing to go to do that? Will you go out of your way? Will you give up some of your comfort? Will you risk embarrassing yourself to be an ambassador for Christ? If you got appointed as an ambassador for the United States, you'd probably jump on the chance to take that job. Seems like a cushy job. But you're an ambassador for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I wonder where he wants you to go. I wonder who he wants you to talk to. I wonder who he wants to reconcile through your appealing on Christ's behalf. And finally, in verse 21, beautiful statement of the atonement. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Isaiah 53, The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. We don't have a real good handle on what really happened at the cross. It's one reason why one of the songs that we sang tonight, and some people don't like this, because it says... I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. And there are people who go, no, we know what it cost. It cost Jesus' life. You have no idea. I have no idea. Maybe I will never know when he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we could become righteousness. Imagine that carrying all the sins of the world on someone who had never experienced sin before. It's one thing he didn't know. He didn't know what it felt like to be guilty. He had never been guilty. But he took upon himself the weight of your sin and mine and everyone else's and gave us his righteousness. I, words fail to describe how important that is, how awesome that is. But I'm so thankful for verses like this, where the Bible just clearly communicates. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, he has made me righteous. He's justified me. He's declared me righteous. He sees me as righteous. I don't have to make myself righteous I don't have to be worried I'm not righteous enough. How righteous is enough? Well, you can start with Jesus. Well, he made me righteous when he took my sins to Calvary. What a glorious truth that is. I'm betting my life on that. I would bet everything that that's true. Because if that's not true, I'm hopeless. But that being true, then what he says about heaven, what he says about our new bodies, what he says about the fact that he wants to use me to reconcile others to him, it all works. It all fits. It makes life so worthwhile. With all the pain and agony and suffering that goes on, that's nothing. When you look at eternity, may God help us to look at eternity, see it through his eyes. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing chapter, chapter 5, Second Corinthians. There's so much in here that we live and die by. Beautiful truths that you have, Lord, for us. Please help these Truths to really sink in. Help us to soak up this great theology and to live our lives in light of eternity, walking by faith, not by sight. There are some people here today who are going through things that it's not looking too good when you look at it by sight. But by faith we praise and thank you for causing everything to work together for good to those who love you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.